0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this was a big week in my life. And uh, the reason for that is, as I turned 53 a couple days ago. And while 53 itself is no big deal, it's not, you know, one of those golden uh, years for me. It held special significance that I'll just kind of keep on my side of the conversation for now. But uh, yesterday, my wife and I celebrated 28 years of marriage also. So it was a week where I opened some uh, wedding and honeymoon albums, looked at pictures, waxed philosophical and sentimental, and just thinking back on what an extraordinary life, and I came up with three things um, as I just thought, three, three desires or three takeaways. The first is this, I wish I could do it all over again. And I'm serious, not because I just want more time, because I look back and, and it was filled with pain and anxiety and, and drama at times, conflict and worry and... And I fear that I missed so much of it. But as I look back, I go, dear God, what a great journey. And I allowed myself to be sucked into anxiety and wondering where God was and if it was all going to turn out okay. And of course, I'm not done yet. But I look back and it is a great story. And I wish I could have been more emotionally present took me to my second thought, and that's this. I wish I could do it over again because I wished I could actually do it better. Not just for me and being emotionally present, but looking back and going, what I know now? If I could do it over again, to love Jesus more deeply, to serve him more faithfully, and to love my wife and children more tenaciously. I think I'm a better me, and I wish I could give him and them even better than I did. And but thirdly, I'm happy where I'm at because the way the story went is part of what God did to change me into the person that I am today. And I want to be clear about this. I have not arrived. I have not been made perfect. I have so much more to learn and so so much character transformation that I still need to undergo, and yet I would say this, I am a changed man. I'm different. One area in particular that I would say that I've been changed is my drivers. My drivers in life, in my career, and in my ministry. At at age 53, I am now entering my second half of my career. And I look back at the things that drove me. Success and significance in particular were my two poisons. There's four basic things that drive every single human being. And even in the church and in ministry, we just put a halo on top of them. We somehow make them holy and sanctify them and say they're actually become good things for the right reasons. And they are money, they are power, they are prestige. And pleasure, and it doesn't matter if you work for the mafia or in the ministry, these four drivers hijack every single one of us in our youth. We are actually born into an upside-down world of mankind, and these things resonate with us, and they drive us. And I look back, and I go, wow, something is changing in me, and I don't miss it. Let me be clear. I had some dreams in my first half of my ministry career and I did not attain or accomplish all my dreams. I did not. There are dreams that are out the window at this point, but I will tell you this. I had enough success to come to my senses and realize even if I got everything that I ever hoped or imagined would come true for me in the ministry, even if I got it, I've come to a place where I am in uh, the awareness that these things would not have brought me the peace of God. In fact, they very well could have destroyed me. I am, I am fully aware at this point. I'm not out of the woods. I'm not saying I'm not tempted and driven by some things that I can't see or sense. But I'm telling you this. I recognize that these are not the things that would bring me true and everlasting, deep, profound joy. These would not bring what the Old Testament calls the shalom of God, the fullness of blessing. These things would not bring what Jesus described as being blessed. These would not be the key to what I want to talk a little bit more about today today about the Sermon on the Mount, but what I will describe as human flourishing. Listen, it's the same experiment that, that we're all running, every single one of us. You're a young person entering your career, and you, do, you don't want to fail, but there's drivers that drive us in our young years and cause us to miss the moment. They, they diminish... What God wants to do in and through us. Money, power, pleasure, and prestige. Do you really, young person, you're in school, you're in college, you're just getting married, you're starting your career. Do you really want to rerun the same old dead broken experiment that has been tried and tested hundreds of millions of times over only to arrive at your middle ages broken? Very successful but recognizing that it was empty. Maybe you're right around my age, starts at about 45, goes to about 55 depending on your career and your personality. And you're coming to your senses and going, what has been the price tags? You're a performer, you're an achiever. And you're saying, but at what cost? And you know that you have a second half coming. And you don't want to go back to the way you lived in the first half, or maybe you're beyond that. You're elderly. And you're at a place in your life where you're just, you're just cramming for finals. You know the end is coming, and you're coasting. Do you just phone it in? Or is there something more, no matter where you're at, no matter who you are, no matter what your age, no matter what your culture, no matter what your particular set of drivers, is there something more, something more substantive, something of the shalom of God, something of blessedness, something called flourishing? Is there anything that can guarantee human flourishing No matter the time, place, culture, income, rank, or status. Are you hungering for more from wherever you are sitting today? And that is why for the next 30 weeks we want to sit at the feet of Jesus and who I believe to be the authorized expert on human flourishing. The final word on human flourishing. This morning I want to set the table. It's called the prologue. That means the beginning or the introduction. And we heard Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and it causes some confusion. And we look at that. It's, It's, by the way, it's the number one most famous sermon in the history of the world. And can I also add this? It is the best known but least practiced. And the reason for that is some of the difficulties that it creates. Perhaps you even choked a little bit on some of those sayings today. Turn the other cheek, give to the one who asks. Have a righteousness better than the scribes and the Pharisees or you won't even get in? Dear God, what is this? And because of the difficulties that we read in the sermon, I'll tell you what most of us have done as we've Ignored it, explained it away, or just flat out given up. And you know what? That's actually the history of the theologies on the Sermon on, on the Mount. This morning, I want to actually just fly through and give about nine. Um, this is not the bulk, uh, this is going to go fast, but nine historical readings, schools of thought on the Sermon on the Mount. Just fly through them, and then we want to get to really Matthew chapter one through four, which is the run up. Because it's very meaningful in the mind of Matthew, the apostle. And why chapters 1 through 4, between ch- before chapters 5 through 7. But, but here are some of the historical schools of thought concerning the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you're going to recognize your philosophy in here. Maybe you're going to hear some that are flat out, I'm not into that one. Um, and others that you go, it kind of sounds true. So here they are. Um, One is the patristic reading. That means the patriarchs, the early church fathers, men like John Chrysostom or St. Augustine. What was their, their take on the Sermon on the Mount? They had no problem with it, actually. They didn't see any conundrum or tension in it. In fact, it was Chrysostom that said it's a vision of the kingdom community or the church. This is what the church could be and should be. And then it was Augustine that said it was the perfect measure of the Christian life. The Catholic reading, a few centuries later, they had a two-tier kind of Christianity. And that for monks and priests, they must obey the Sermon on the Mount and everyone else is off the hook. So this was a teaching for super-Christians. And we have the elaboration of the Mosaic Law reading, which was Jesus, the original author of the Law of God, speaking through Moses, is now resetting the boundaries of the Ten Commandments that had been tormented and tortured over the centuries. And he is resetting the lines and adding in some spirituality and spiritual content to it. We have Martin Luther who is known for the impossible ideal reading of the Sermon on the Mount. That is to say that this is a new kind of law that is meant to bring us to the end of ourselves. It is impossible. And it will bring you to your knees until you cry out and beg for mercy and grace from God. But in the end, it really has no bearing other than just making you desperate for a Savior. Then, the radical literal reading, these were the Anabaptists. If you want to know what an Anabaptist is, look toward the, uh, the Amish or the Mennonites. And their reading was basically um, radical literal reading, check the box. You don't have to think about it, feel it. It doesn't have to be from the heart. He said it, he meant it, we do it. And a new kind of legalism. Check the box and say, we're good, we did it. There's the the Reformed reading. Okay, John Calvin actually believed this. Jesus rescued the law from the empty external conformity of the Pharisees and instead emphasized obedience from the heart. He said that the sermon cannot be fulfilled by Christians in the flesh, but by the grace given through the Holy Spirit through dependence on God alone. Then there's the dispensationalist view. Or reading. Jesus was offering the kingdom at this moment to the Jews. But unfortunately, they did not believe his teaching, so he could not actually follow through and inaugurate the kingdom of heaven in their time. And so, the age of the Gentiles and uh, dying on the cross and the church and the church age are in, in, in a sort of sense, they are kind of a plan B that came into the story because the Jews rejected the kingdom of God. And now when Jesus returns in what is called the millennial kingdom, reign of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount will then apply. But it's not for us today. Don't try to fit it in. And while I haven't really critiqued any of these or affirmed them, I will say this, that I am generally a progressive dispensationalist. However, I absolutely reject this view. It's inconsistent with the context, the content of the sermon itself, as well as the remainder of the New Testament epistles. Here's second to last, the social gospel or ethical reading, if you know the theologian Karl Barth, or the one outside of Christianity, Mahatma Gandhi, the Social gospel or ethical reading states that the sermon is a set of ethical principles laid down for human society, and if applied by society, all of our troubles will go away. No mention of the need for spiritual conversion whatsoever. And here's the final one, number nine, and it's the one that I'm going to primarily stand behind, and that is this it is the human flourishing reading. And what does it say? It says this that the Sermon on the Mount is a simple and straightforward profile of profile of uh, a citizen of the kingdom, a process for growing in that kingdom, and a pathway to true human flourishing in the here and now. No, it will not become complete until the millennial reign of Christ. However, the kingdom is at hand. And this is a position that I believe that is full of the gospel of grace and full of hope. Where do I get this? Because the word in the Greek, uh, it literally means to be supremely blessed. It shows up again and again and again and the Beatitudes, to be supremely blessed. Some just translate it, and it's a good translation. Happy are those. Happy. Uh, Shalom. Fulfillment. Or I would go back to the word flourishing. And flourishing, not sometime in the future that we've got to wait for Jesus' return or wait for our, our own death, but right here, right now. You see, the Garden of Eden... The Garden of Eden was this place of shalom, the place of makairos, the place of blessedness, the place of ultimate human flourishing. But because of sin and rebellion, that was foregone. It was lost. This paradise of God was surrendered in our great-grandparents' rebellion. And throughout the ages and throughout the centuries, the scripture says that that God placed eternity in our hearts. Blaise Pascal said that there's a God-shaped vacuum, and we try to jam all these other things. I named the four drivers, and we think that those will make me truly blessed, truly happy. I will flourish if I can get enough of those things. And all along the journey, cultures and, and nations and tribes and religious and philosophical uh, uh, schools of thought have been out there trying to figure out what is this deep longing? What is this deep hunger? The, the great philosophical questions. What is a good life? What makes a good person? And how do we attain those things? God, along the journey of his plan of the ages, sends prophets. Prophets. And he displays himself. Sometimes he even shows up in human form or in the angel of the Lord or speaks from heaven or in a burning bush. And he's leading and he's he's revealing himself over time. God is the one behind the scenes orchestrating the history of the world, revealing himself, leading us back into what could be What we describe as human flourishing. And then one day, Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene. And he shares with us the center of the center of his heart and his teaching. What I believe to be the key to human flourishing. Kind of flourishing spoken by King David in Psalm chapter 1. Verses 1 through 3, listen, blessed is the man, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. If I could just pause right there, we think law, oh no, duty and commandment, and we think of law as like, and that's the thing that condemns me, the thing that I can't live up to. But at the same time, this word law, which is so redacted and truncated by our Western minds, instead of seeing this guy, David, king of Israel, prophet of God, great, great, great grandfather of Jesus of Nazareth, is delighting in this thing because he's seeing in it the instruction of Yahweh that is leading him into genuine human flourishing. So he says, yeah, it's, Uh, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He sits at the feet of Yahweh, because he's hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He's hungering for something more than what he's achieved or experienced thus far. And he knows that it's only to be found in the revealed teachings of Almighty God. And this is the outcome of this kind of person in verse 3. A picture of flourishing, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that leads its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Sound good? Sounds good to me. It's what I'm hungering for at age 53, going into my 54th year. I don't want to waste any more time. I haven't found it fully. I haven't become that which I am to become. I haven't tasted or drunk as deeply as I know what he has to offer. And I believe that the answer to this hunger, this thirsting, is found in the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' final answer to the universal hunger for flourishing. Uh, It's Jesus' answer to the fundamental, foundational, philosophical questions of, of what is a good life? Who is a good person? And how would we attain to that kind of life or character? And it is true, it is true that Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount hit our ear funny, contradictory, impossible, backwards, or even upside down. But remember, we were born into this world upside down. We were born flying upside down. If you remember a couple of weeks ago in the illustration of the A-10 pilot, nose-diving into the desert floor. She pulled back on the stick, wanting to go into a steep climb. But instead, she went straight into the dirt. She didn't recognize that she was flying upside down. That's us. That's why the Sermon on the Mount sounds so weird, so impossible. And yet, it is Jesus. He's not doing a head fake. He's not tricking us. He's not saying, tricked you, you can't do it. Jesus is really actually offering us something. And not just something for the hereafter, but something in the here and now. And this is the bottom line to our message today. If you have a fill in the blank or you're taking notes, here's the bottom line that we're going to look at in the remainder of our time. Jesus is the final word and supreme authority on human flourishing. But to live it, I must apprentice after him. Hey, believing and receiving is really important. Going to heaven when I die, people, it is super, super important. But why would I stop there? If eternal life and human flourishing is for us here and now, but we have to to turn right side up and hear the words in their context from the heart of Jesus, why would we not sit at the feet of Jesus the final word and ultimate authority on human fl- flourishing. Well, here's my question How do we know for sure that we can trust Jesus? I believe that this is very clearly Matthew's intent in Matthew chapter one through four. And I'm just going to pick one verse out of Matthew chapter one, and it's the first verse. This is how it opens up, and I'm just going to give you five reasons why we can absolutely take it to the bank. There's never been anyone like Jesus of Nazareth. Let me just tell you, he is the only, and this is your second fill in the blank, he is the only credentialed authority on human flourishing. He's the only one. There's been lots of individuals who have come along from different times, different places, different cultures, wise men that discovered a nugget of truth. Listen, even a broken clock is correct two times a day. So we have people like Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. We have Siddhartha who became, quote, the Buddha. We have uh, Confucius, an individual who sought after wisdom, sought after the meaning of life and had a few discoveries. We have the school of thought of the Stoics and the Epicureans. We have the, the Jewish group called the Essenes. We have the, the scribes and the Pharisees and And the Sadducees, all of them after the same thing, hungering and thirsting for human flourishing. But only Jesus comes along with the credentials. Not stumbling in the dark with a piece of the truth, but with the one with the absolute keys to life and death. And this is where Matthew's gospel begins with that Jesus is no philosopher or mere philosopher or, or no mere uh, enlightened rabbi that Jesus is Messiah King himself. This is what it says in, in uh, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And sure enough, the Old Testament said, God said to, to David uh, in 2 Samuel, he says, after, after you, I'm going to raise up a son, through you from your own body and I will establish his kingdom we think he's talking about Solomon but then listen to about the words about Solomon's kingdom God goes on to say he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever next verse says in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever Isaiah 11:1 we we look at it at Christmas time there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? That's David's dad. And out of the stump is going to come a shoot, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jeremiah 23, 5-6, through six, God says, and wow, this is the sinker, because Jesus fulfilled this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And so isn't it interesting how Matthew opens his gospel, which, by the way, is primarily a Jewish gospel for Jewish believers, for them to know that they know. That Jesus is Christ Messiah and to know what it looks like and means to follow him as disciples. That's Matthew's gospel. And so Matthew opens up with this statement that he is from the lineage of Abraham and the lineage of David. He had to be so to be Christ Messiah. He is the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, king messiah the king has entered the universe to give the final authoritative word on human flourishing here's number two he is the fulfilled prophet's prophecies and i'm not even going to go through all these there's seven that are listed in in matthew chapter one through three seven old testament prophecies uh for instance he'd be born of a virgin virgin that's in matthew 1 22-23 and that's the fulfillment of Isaiah seven fourteen, he would be born in Bethlehem. That's what it says in Matthew two five through six. That is the fulfillment of Micah five two. He would be called out of Egypt. That's what it says here in Matthew two fourteen through fifteen. That's the fulfillment of Hosea eleven verse one. It says that there would be a bloodbath, a massacre surrounding his birth in his childhood, when King Herod would try to wipe out all the male babies. And this was the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 15 that Matthew speaks of in Matthew chapter 2, verse 17 through 18. And then that he would have a forerunner named John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes into the story in Matthew 3, verse 1 through 3. This was the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And then that Jesus would come not only for the Jews, but that through being Jewish That the entire world of the Gentiles would actually see the light. And that's mentioned in Matthew 4, verses 13 through 16. That is the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, verse 1. And did you know that there are over 300 such prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures concerning the first coming of Jesus? Mathematically and statistically impossible. He is Messiah King, and he is the fulfillment of the prophet's prophecies. But next, he is the ultimate and only law keeper. In chapter 4, we have Jesus, after his baptism, being led out into the wilderness for how long? 40 days. And at the end of 40 days, he's, he's hungering and he's thirsting. And Lucifer himself comes to him and tempts him in the three ways that all people are tempted. The appetites of the body, the things that our bodies want for themselves to feel good. The things that our eyes see and say, I want that for myself. And finally, the prideful pushback of ego. I want to be recognized. These are the same species of sin and temptation that were offered to Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. John, the, the, one, the disciple whom Jesus loved in 1 John chapter 2 describes them like this, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And those exactly correspond to the three temptations that the devil tempted Jesus Messiah with in the wilderness. And how did Jesus combat those very real temptations? He combated all three of them by quoting Deuteronomy. You don't want to know what Deuteronomy is? It's the retelling ...of the Old Covenant teachings on how to experience flourishing. We have this in Matthew 4.4. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3... Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes to the mouth of God. In Matthew four seven, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy six sixteen again. It is written, "You shall not put the Lord your God to the test." And then in Matthew four ten, he quotes Deuteronomy six thirteen: "You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve." And this is why, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these words: Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Jesus, King Messiah, fulfilled both the law and the prophets. Oh, we go on. We see the typologies and the pictures. If you think back one sermon series to the atonement series and all the Old Testament pictures and, and metaphors and illustrations and foreshadowings and typologies of the coming of Messiah. And then here he is. And he is... The second and better Moses, and he is the better and triumphant Israel. We've already gone over this, but let me just give you in brief that, that when the Jews were delivered from Israel and Moses, and they went through the Red Sea as as a baptism and then out into the wilderness. For Moses, they go to the Mount Sinai, and not once, but at least two or three times, you know, Moses went up Mount Sinai, and for 40 days he fasted, no food or water. Two or three times and then here's Jesus being baptized in the Jordan identifying with sinful mankind being led out into the wilderness for how long 40 days in the wilderness he is the second and better Moses but he's also the better and triumphant Israel they also went through the red sea but their 40 was 40 years of wandering in the desert. 40 years of grumbling, struggling, sinning, and complaining. And yet Jesus of Nazareth, his 40 in the desert, he is impeccable. He is the successful Israel. And then the final thing that I'll just mention on his credentials is this. When Jesus speaks, when he calls a man... When he ministers to the masses, no matter what their problem is, or he teaches, he does it with authority, and he is successful. We have this in Matthew 4, 17, and I want you to hear this, because I think that this is at the heart of the call today, between you and Jesus, and what you're going to do with the Sermon on the Mount, is this, Matthew four seventeen? from that time, Jesus began saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word repent, people like to say, oh, oh I'm going to see it when I, I, I'll know it when I see it because that person has turned around. That's not what it means. It actually means change your mind for the better. You think you know the secret to human flourishing. You know what will make you happy. Change your mind. The kingdom of heaven is right here, right now. Yes, there's a future expression of it, a fulfillment, but it is here. And in fact, in Luke chapter 17, verse 20 through 21, Jesus being asked by the Pharisees, when will the kingdom of God come? How will we know it? He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it goes. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you right now. You know the secret to your own happiness? How's that worked out for you? Repent. Change your mind. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is why the invitation was so powerful. Later on in Matthew chapter 4, the scripture says that while Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers who is Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen, and he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And the scripture says, both in this gospel and in Mark's gospel, immediately they dropped their nets, and whatever fish were in the nets, and they walked away from their family business. It says that going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. So now they're actually working the family business with dad. And Jesus said, you follow me too. And they dropped everything and they left their father and they followed Jesus. That's what I call authority. That's what I call presence. That's what I call command. And the person of Jesus so compelling that these guys recognized and said, whatever we thought we were gonna do with our lives... Has now changed. They repented because they recognized the kingdom of heaven was at hand. We go on, and this is really uh, coming up to the end of what we have to look at today. But uh, a few verses later, Matthew four twenty three through twenty five. Look at his ministry. It says that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. It's in this context, Jesus, his power, his authority, his credentials, people following him, his power and ministry to do anything and everything. And they begin to follow him. And then it says here, seeing the crowds, he went up on the, on the mount. This is Matthew 5, verse 1. He sat down and his disciples came to him. And this is the setting for the Sermon on the Mount. And for three chapters, he preaches what we just read. And at the end, just to re, re uh, consider this, it says in Matthew 7, 28 through 29, when Jesus finished these sayings, he's done with his sermon, says that the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. What's the point of these five evidences or proofs from Matthew chapter 1 through 4? The, the, the purpose is this, he is the only authorized and credential expert on human flourishing, on shalom, on what it means to be blessed. But in order to experience that, in order to live up and into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that he is offering, if I would flourish, it's your final fill-in-the-blank for the day, I must sit at the feet of Jesus to listen, learn, and live His instructions. Jesus said, follow me. We believe, we receive, that's important. We're evangelicals, for crying out loud. But did we ever think to apprentice our lives after the master? Are we going to take the free gift and run? Are we just after fire insurance? Can I tell you about fire insurance? It's really wise to have it if you think a fire is inevitable. So, yay for fire insurance Christianity. But let me give you another illustration. Car insurance. Car insurance on a car that doesn't work. Or I'm not allowed to have the keys. I just park it in the garage. It's for when I die. Can't I have car insurance and a car that I can drive right now? And I think that the obvious answer is yes. Yes. And in my walking with and believing upon and receiving Jesus, I also want a car that works, a car that I get to drive today. I know it won't be what is coming for me in the future or coming for the entire world in world history. I believe that too. But I believe the Sermon on the Mount is for us today and that we have an opportunity to apprentice our lives after Jesus. And no matter what we've known From here up to this point, there's so much more to come, no matter where you're coming from in life. If we would but sit at the feet of Jesus to listen and learn and live his instructions. How do I know this? John 8 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Walking is about this lifetime's journey. It's not about the hereafter. And Jesus is saying, if you follow me, apprentice after me, learn from me, obey my commandments, trust me with your very life, you will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Sounds like flourishing to me. And it's what I'm after. And then can I just tell you this? That after Jesus said these things and taught these things... Yes, he did die on the cross. You want to know why? Well, first off, so that we could go to heaven when we die. But you want to know what else? So that he could actually forgive us and send us his Holy Spirit, who would actually transform us from the inside out. So that when we look at that, we go, Yeah, that sounds very familiar. That's who I'm becoming. Because Jesus died and rose again and ascended and sent his Holy Spirit to not only change me, but to empower me when that seems hard. And we know God is calling for obedience. We go, yes, I can. In Jesus' name, I can. And in Jesus' name, let's do this, Lord. This is flourishing. Not walking in darkness, but having the light of life. Jesus is the final word and supreme authority on human flourishing. But to live it, we must apprentice ourselves after him. I believe that the Sermon on the Mount is the epicenter of the teachings of Jesus. You know, in Matthew 28, final verse, Matthew 28, verse 19 through 20, we call it the Great Commission. You know, Jesus said, go. Get after it. Remember when he called Peter, James, and John, he said, "Uh, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Now he's sending out the entire church. To fish for people. But he says these words. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then watch this. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And what did Jesus command? The Sermon on the Mount. What did he mean? Let's look at that in the next several weeks. But will I observe what he has commanded? Will I apprentice myself after him, that remains to be seen. But just know this one thing. I want to flourish. I want to flourish. So I'm going to trust Jesus. And when I blow it, you're going to call me out. Because that's what I'm after. Because men and women, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Dear Father, Father, Forgive us for our low expectations of what it could mean to know you, to serve you, to follow you, to apprentice our lives after you and experience true and genuine, deep, profound, substantive, shalom, blessedness, flourishing, Father, we know that you're not going to take away the hard stuff. We're not preaching a, a prosperity gospel that we get everything we think we thought we wanted in the same carnal, upside-down kingdom drivers. We're saying, God, change us from the inside out. But in the end, we resemble Jesus. We look just like him. We are, are slandered by being called little Christs or Christians. That's what we would desire, Lord, and experience the fullness of what you have for us And we pray it together and individually in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.